Hello and welcome to The Last Wicket, a cricket podcast that recommends you take a pause and consider if it is truly just banter before you decide to tie someone up and leave them in a hotel room overnight. Just a thought. I'm your host, Benny, and thank you for tuning in. This week, our host is editor-in-chief of cricketnews.com, statistician and cricket history aficionado, Abhishek Mukherjee. Along with co-host Mayank, I spoke with Abhishek about cricketers whose paths did not quite turn out the way they were expected to. We took a trip down memory lane and discussed Venkatesh Prasad, Nikhil Chopra, Vinod Kambli, and Manander Singh, among a few others. We will get straight into the conversation with Abhishek right after this brief message. Hey y'all, this is Benny the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible array of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. So Abhishek, you know, the idea behind uh, this episode is to talk about players with odd careers and I feel like we should explain what we mean when we say odd, because uh, some of the players um, that we're going to be talking about in the next you know, half hour or so, these are not players who just had one or two games. You know, These are players who played for a number of years. You'll, pro- you'll probably find highlights of their performances on YouTube. Um, but really, it's about players whose careers didn't pan out the way it was we expected it to be, or we just don't talk about them enough. So that is the idea. So in that vein, I thought we would start with, um, you know, since we are, we consider that we are living in the golden age of uh, Indian pace bowling, you know, where players like Bumrah, Shami, Siraj, um, they are you know, we talk about them as among the world's best. Um, so I want to go back to a time when I started following cricket, you know, in the late 90s and uh, early 2000s. Um, along with Javagal Srinath, we had uh, someone like Venkatesh Prasad. 
And it's easy if we compare him with, you know, the fast bowlers of the Indian fast bowlers of today, he might be unfairly uh, compared for different reasons. Uh, but looking at his statistics, you know, in tests, which, you know, he played far fewer tests than in limited overs. He had seven hauls of five wickets or more in five different countries. And um, I just wanted to get your perspective on Venkatesh Prasad. Do we talk about him enough? And, uh, you know, what do you think his impact on Indian cricket was? First of all, um, first, uh, let me get the oddity bit out of it, out of it. I mean, uh, out of the way. See, uh, Prasad's career can be split into okay. three parts. Not by time, but by opposition. So, if you group them like this, against England, Pakistan and South Africa, he averages, 20, uh, combined, he averages 25 with ball in tests, 28 in ODIs, 4.46 economy. Against Australia, New Zealand, Sri Lanka and West Indies, he averages 46 with ball in tests, 40 in ODIs, 5 economy. And against Bangladesh, Kenya, Zimbabwe, he has not played a test match in ODIs, 25 average, 4.28 economy. So three clear-cut demarcations. I, I tried but could not find out uh, a reason for this. England and South Africa, I can still understand why he performed against them. But Pakistan does not make sense. I mean, uh, in England, Pakistan and South Africa and then New Zealand is in the other group, Australia, New Zealand, Sri Lanka, West Indies. This, uh, I cannot fit any, but that, that is who he was. He had, he had highs and he had lows. See, against uh, that Tendulkar 136 at Chennai, we often talk about that. I mean, one of the most, and, uh, uh, and 17 years before that, Imran had that famous five for three spell uh, uh, against India. Five, five wickets for three runs. But uh, what is not talked about as much is, just before that Tendulkar 136, how the Pakistan innings ended, Venkatesh Prasad took, took a spell of 5 for 0. That was how the spell ended. Uh, that was how the innings ended. Before that, in, Pak in South Africa, he took a 10-wicket haul. He's probably still the only Indian to take a 10-wicket haul in South Africa. Uh, two year, uh, in 2001, in Sri Lanka, he takes a 5-wicket haul in uh, out of nowhere. And the only resistance comes from Muldithar. And this is also forgotten yeah. because uh, Ganguly and Dravid play two, play two very good innings. Ganguly gets 98 not out, Dravid gets 75. What is forgotten is Prasad took a five wicket haul before that. I mean, there are these spells. I'll, I'll tell you another. The 96 test match at Eden Gardens against South Africa, Azhar played that uh, monster innings. Uh, the, at that point, the fastest hundred, fastest hundred by an Indian. Uh, Kluzner took eight wickets in the fourth innings. Kirsten scored a hundred in each innings. I was there at the ground. In the first two sessions, South Africa scored uh, what? I, I did not lose a wicket. Kirsten and Hudson batted out two sessions. In the last session, there were two wickets, so they scored about three hundred twenty for two in day one. Next day, Prasad bowls them out in one session. He takes six wickets. He, and time and again, between lows, between long phases of low, he used to produce these highs. So, yeah, I mean, the next good... I, I, 
again another forgotten performance i mean we talk about prasad's performance in against pakistan in the 96 world cup we don't discuss him uh, the 99 world cup performance as often india were defending 227 prasad took five wickets before that yeah. in 97 yeah. i think there was a there, it wasn't an asia cup i think in sri lanka india uh, i mean nobody backed india against pakistan i think uh, in that day the match was abandoned due to rain but before then pakistan lost five wickets for under 100 and prasad took four of them so and then there so would come long phases where he would do nothing even in new zealand right. where he was expected to do well so why do you think that uh, you know when we think uh, and i I'm, I'm, i might end up generalizing indian fans but at least from my perspective when i think of venkatesh prasad it's all the first memory and probably the only memory now 20 24 years later is that world cup semi final um against uh, well was it world cup semi final or quarter final against pakistan <laughs> it was quarter final i think in 96 um that that send off to amir sohail right it's it's the stuff of legend it's the stuff that lives on in youtube forever and gets shared on social media time and again but everything else all those accomplishments that you just mentioned th- those are incredible like if someone today an indian fastballer was doing that today we would be talking about that every day or every week so why do you think in in uh, prasad's case it's different i think if if uh, for stars if if there are favorite stars we typically remember their success celebrate their success but remember their long phases of failure and if they're not our favorite star we remember their failures most more mm-hmm. and if it's not our favorite star and right, we right. still have some sort of soft corner we typically call them underrated on social media that's the usual tag <laughs> but uh, regarding that world cup right. quarter final right. uh, there's a mem- I, i think Prasad went for two for two. Uh, his first two overs went for twenty-seven or something. I don't think there is ball-by-ball commentary available. So and uh, Azhar gave him a change of ends. And from the other end, Prasad in his uh, second spell, I think, bowled eight overs on the trot. He not only got uh, Sohail, he also got Ijaz and Inzamam. And his second spell was, I think, again from memory, I'm speaking, eight overs, three for twenty. So ended up uh, ended with three for forty-seven. remember prasad was not even india's uh, new ball bowler when the tournament started it was prabhakar and uh, srinath prabhakar's career ended midway through the tournament and and what's interesting is um, i mean i'm just curious do you think that there was maybe a scope for him to have a longer test career because clearly he's had five wicket hauls in you know different countries so he's uh, shown potential Uh, and there are a lot of players like we talk about Ishan Sharma you know who had a extended run where he performed poorly but eventually he did adapt to different conditions do you think that was there was a chance venkatesh prasad could have done the same i think uh, uh, i think there is the general theory and there is fact and 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 there is logic in that i mean there's no doubt about that that pace always helps after all right. getting a wicket is all about uh, either beating the edge or uh, uh, finding the edge and against a bowler of greater pace the batter is uh, batter always has less reaction time so the uh, of the of the two of two bowlers with similar careers the one with greater pace always has an advantage i remember his bowling action too and it seemed to be <laughs> 
uh, to put it kindly, it was not the most uh, uh, repeated action, right? It was kind of this very lanky limbs flying in all directions. Uh, it was accurate for most part, but uh, it was not something that I don't think kids were running around trying to emulate that action. Yeah. But again, I uh, see Prasad's first, uh, Prasad, I remember Prasad's first memory of Test Cricket, my, my first memory of Prasad and Test Cricket was the 96 tour of England. This Before that, Indian fans had got only one test, got to see only one test series from outside Asia. So cable TV was also new and this was a, a very strange, I mean, it was, a, if you look at the scorecard, it was a very peculiar looking scorecard. I mean, uh, in the first test match, for example, India had Ganguly and uh, Ganguly and Dravid both uh, debuted in the second test match. In the first test, uh, there was no, uh, there was no Ganguly, no Dravid, they were sitting in the reserves. But Sunil Joshi played as a specialist batter. The scorecard looks, if you see, he played played batted at six, but did not bowl. So, yes, I mean, it was a, was a very... Right. So, in the second test match, uh, um, Prasad plays and then uh, before Ganguly and Dravid uh, actually have an impact, Prasad takes five wickets in the first innings. And from 326 for six, I, again from memory, England collapsed to 344. And he would just keep doing that time and again. Right. So um, the other player that comes to mind also from you know, the 90s is a player who I've actually met. Uh, so Mikhail Chopra back when I was 11 or 12 once gave me a Man of the Match award. And about him, uh, but uh, as you know, I've read more and and you know looked at stats. I've, I've realized he was uh, obviously he played for a very short period, about a three-year period, where he managed to play just one Test match. Uh, but he had a reasonably solid ODI career, uh, where he took 46 wickets in 39 games at 27, a very decent economy as well. Um, and in his second ODI in '98. He took one for 34 solid Sri Lankan lineup, which included the likes of Jaisuria. They were the defending champions, and definitely some bowlers in that match went for well over five and over. Um, so, what can you tell us about Mikhil Chopra and his ODI, um, you know, ODI record? See, if you see Nikhil Chopra bowl, if you have seen Nikhil Chopra bowl, you'll know that he was a very innocuous bowler. It, never seemed that he would run through a site but batters who actually played their shots against Kumble were happy to push him away for singles which his uh, he often bowled I agree he often bowled in the middle overs but still he was very difficult to score off and he was not a great he did not ball spin the ball a long way I mean, he did not have a lot of variations. He just bowled. I mean, he just put the ball in the right areas and he just restricted batters. And I think um, his role in the middle overs is very understated because in ODIs, uh, we generally tend to, uh, I mean, our tendency is to celebrate five wicket hauls, four wicket hauls. But 
I think he had only one or maybe none. So there were not many wickets. But yeah, I mean, uh, his bowling, even his bowling average was quite impressive. So, uh, and the thing is, if you try to remember a Nikhil Chopra spell, you'll have to think really hard. And that is probably because he was that accurate. Accuracy is seldom remembered. Do you think a player like him would have done well in the T20 era? Like with IPL sides, do you think he would have been... A- of course, I, I, I'm I sure he they would have brought him on just after the power play. He might have bowled four overs on the trot uh, before the death overs. And he would have uh, been conceding about 32-33, maybe not taking even one wicket. He would have done a very... And he could bat as well, I think. I think uh, Chopra would have been a nice fit. He would not have been a star, but he would have been one of those right. bowlers who play throughout the entire season. Maybe out of 14 league matches, he would have played 12 and ended with an economy rate of 7.5. You would remember. You would, he would go unnoticed, but teams would, uh, teams would have realized his value. Another player for whom uh, we would just say underrated or underappreciated a bunch of times. But, uh, but I think what's also interesting about Nikhil Chopra is if you look at his domestic record, whether it's list A or first class, those numbers were not that great. His list A record is actually worse than his ODI record, which is not something we see very common. So I guess that sort of makes me think that the selectors actually had seen him bowl, which is why they realized his accuracy was you know something to play with. Play with. And, and gave him a chance. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, like, say, Shardul Thakur. Shardul's domestic record is not great. But hey, look at his international numbers. I mean, uh, I think, yes, uh, selectors, uh, the only emotion we show towards selectors is often negative. But uh, Nikhil Chopra, I suppose, is a case where we should back them. I mean, the, I mean, picking based on numbers is something. I mean, you, the, I mean, picking someone beyond numbers is something that only proper you you can do only through proper scouting. Yeah, I think uh, the selectors definitely deserve credit for that. We d- we don't often credit selectors enough. I also feel like this was the time when. Um the Indian cricket team are searching for just reliable options as far as bowlers who could bat, you know, especially spin, uh, spin bowlers who could bat, someone to give uh, support to the likes of Kumble. Um So I wonder, if, because I'm, I'm remembering Vijay Bardwaj. Uh, there was a time where, uh, you know, he would walk in with his spectacles and, uh, you know, he, he just looked very studious. And I remember a couple of games, uh, I think it was against New Zealand, he made an impact. So I feel like that was a time when, you know, the likes of Bardwaj, Chopra, you know, they, so that was a good time. If you wanted to be a spinner who could bat a bit <laughs> or a batter who could spin, uh, I think uh, that was that was a great time to be in the Indian team. I think this search for an all-rounder uh, happened because India, for a long time, did not have a wicketkeeper who could bat so in ODIs, in ODIs, in tests, okay. I mean, uh, uh, Nayan Mungia did a, this, I won't say an imp- a great job, but he 
did an okay job. He did a decent job. But again, uh, in the late, right. this was the late 90s when batting was changing in ODIs. Wicket keepers were taking up a second job. Andy Flower and uh, uh, Alex Stewart had been there for some time. Uh, by the 1999 World Cup, Australia right. were using Ridley Jacobs as opener. Moin Khan was demolishing oppositions for Pakistan in the death overs. And then Gilchrist was there. Boucher was there. Gilchrist was already opening batting yeah. by the 99 World Cup. He had arrived in 97. By 99 World Cup, he was opening batting. There was Boucher. <clears throat> essentially, every side. And New Zealand had Parore. So, essentially, every side had a... Uh, had a wicketkeeper who could, who could either... Uh, bat in the top three and make a big score, and uh, or someone down the order who could uh, really slog in the death overs, and uh, in Gil- Gilchrist of course could do both, but uh, uh, Gilchrist actually batted down the order in his early days before he was pushed up. So essentially, India did not have anyone who could fit into this role before until uh, they had decided to slot in Rahul Dravid because that was an that was something they had to do because there was no option. So, to compensate for this, India had to find either batters who could bowl or bowlers who could bat. So, they already had Tendulkar. They already had Ganguly. If you remember, in the 2000 home series against South Africa, Ganguly even tried Dravid as a bowler. So, essentially, they were trying things out. and right. But their bat- bowlers were not batters. So, they were uh, desperate to find that bowler that one bowler who could bat. Vijay Bharadwaj, I think, played those ODIs largely because of this, because they needed this all-round position. And they were, uh, this is unlike uh, most situations, but where most sides had a wicketkeeper who could bat, but India did not. So they were already behind, lagging behind. In the 99 World Cup, where Ganguly made that 183 and Dravid made 145, Dravid kept wickets in that. They had little option. So, one uh, person I would really like to talk about, about from that era was Ruben Paul of Tamil Nadu. We kept reading about him in newspapers. This is a wicketkeeper who could demolish any domestic side. So, he probably at one point held the fastest Ranji Trophy 100. And But they did not pick him probably because he, he would have to bat, in the, bat at the top and the top was already, the, the top was already too crowded. Yeah, the flexibility that most teams, including India, exhibit today, um, I don't think that was a hallmark of the Indian team uh, of that era, the late 90s and early 2000s. At least as far as I remember, you know, certain spots were reserved for certain players or a type of player. Uh, But now, I think especially, again, with T20s, I think, you know, the batting order needs to be flexible. Players need to be able to adapt at different positions. So I feel like he probably would have got a chance you know in this era i mean um these days the wicket keeping skills well, are not even required <laughs> no uh, i believe i remember 2015 or something a match i think warwickshire did that they fielded without a wicket keeper the wicket keeper is not mandatory oh so there was no one behind the stumps no it's not a mandatory position there was no one wearing pads gloves either there was no one there. All 11 okay. were fielding. See, uh, the, what, uh, the wicketkeeper comes only into play when you miss or edge a ball. If it's a true wicket and everyone is playing 
everyone is middling everything. Right. Why would you need a wicketkeeper? Makes sense. Probably they should check, trial that out in the IPL <laughs> as well. Uh, but talking about batters who can bowl a bit, uh, let's go down to Australia. Uh, everybody knows, everybody talks about Mike Hussey, uh, but obviously his brother David Hussey uh, himself is a very impressive cricketer. He's played more than 100 limited over internationals for Australia. Uh, but his first class career is, you know, impressive by itself. You know, not not many people score 14,000 plus first class runs at an average of 52 uh, with a 50 plus score every two innings or every two to three innings, but never play a test match. Um, but I also think, and please w- weigh in on this, uh, that Australian team of that era um I mean, th- that was a power-packed mid-order for tests, right? You had Matthew Hayden, Justin Langer, Ricky Ponting, Damian Martin, um, Andrew uh, Simons from time to time. So do you think it's just a matter of just bad luck? It was just he was the right person in the wrong place at the wrong time? Yes, definitely. That's pretty much it. <laughs> but uh, he, uh, yes, yes, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. He would have played. Uh, he would have played for uh, this Austra- in this Australian team, or many most other Australian teams, and he would probably have played for any other side of that era. Yeah. He was just uh, the wrong place at the wrong time. But then again, uh, again, I'll talk about scouting. Uh, David Hussey was sold for more than Michael Hussey in the mm-hmm. inaugural IPL. So, again, the scouts or selectors, whatever you say, the franchise owners, they did their research well. Yeah, I remember he played with, uh, at Chennai uh, for the Chennai Super Kings for a bit. So, I did remember that. Um, yeah, it, it's just incredible to think about the number of players. And, you know, David Hussey is an example. But there are so many players who seem to be just in the wrong place at the wrong time even in india like india has ha- india is having that problem now uh, especially in limited overs cricket where there's so many talented young batsmen and every time when a squad is announced there's always a question of why was this player not picked you know and it's it's just a case of but where is he going to fit in so in that case like what is there anything that they can do just play better See, India, uh, these days, India typically announced a squad of 18, 18, and uh, it usually coincides, often coincides with an India A tour. So that is another 18 people. And uh, there's not, there's some difference, of course, between these two squads, but not a huge difference. They come from the same pool. And probably 18, about 18 others get left out. So these 50 people are probably... uh, the be- are not probably are the best 50 cricketers in the country i think once you make it to the 50 it's basically giving yourself that extra push i mean i don't know it's it's it requires perform- to be uh, this so many people play cricket at such high level in india that to be part of that 50 itself seems unbelievable this is such a vast country with a talent pool this right. deep. And from that 50 to break it, break through to India A and then to India, uh, 
I mean, these anyone who plays for India these days comes across to me as incredible. You have to be, I mean, not have to be, you are among the best in the country, in the deepest talent pool in the world. It's absurd. I mean, I can always say that they need to play better, but is it even humanly possible to play better? <laughs> right, and I, and I think that was very much true for the Australian setup for that time. You know, with their six teams, they had very uh, sort of refined talent coming through the, to the top um, in, in Sheffield Shield, and, and Dave Hussey was clearly up there, consistently performing, scoring you know thousands of runs each season. But uh, yeah, I guess at the national level, you have to think about you know. Whether you even need a change. Brad Hodge, Stuart Law, Darren Lehman. Of course, they at least played test right. cricket. But yeah. Well, we can't talk about um, odd careers without mentioning Vinod Kamli. And uh, again, this is another cricketer that I've not seen a lot, but I've read a lot. And many believe that he was actually more talented than Sachin Tendulkar. Um, obviously, these two were childhood friends and incredibly gifted, both of them. And, you know, I'm sure there are different takes on who was more gifted. But um, he had a very great start to his test career. Um, the first seven tests, 200s to double hundreds. And yet he ended up with just 17 tests. Um, still an average of 54 for his thousand odd runs. Um, Abhishek, how can this be explained? How can somebody just play 17 tests with that average? I don't know, really don't know. I was, we were told uh, the, the the general uh, idea perception. I was a I was very young back then. I, we the we knew that Tomley could not play fast bowling. But when was he tested by fast bowlers? I think he played only one test match outside the subcontinent. Uh, uh, so that was in New Zealand. Oh, that was probably his last test. Before that, he played West Indies just once, and the others were. I I I, I never saw him really tested by hostile fast bowlers over a long test series. I never saw that. So I don't know. I mean, the selectors must have seen something. And then uh, if he was so weak against fast bowling, why did Boland pick him to play for a season? I don't know. Similarly, Praveen Amre, another, I mean, what do you say? Not colleague, batchmate, classmate. I don't know what the term is. So, of Kamli. Amre scored a 50 on ODI debut. He scored a 100 on test debut. The test, 100 on test debut was in Durban. And his test career, I think, lasted less than a year. And he actually never got a chance to fail. So, yes, some... Uh, right. I am sure things are a lot more professional now. At least these bizarre things happen much less. But you think of someone like Karun Nair. He scored a 300 and... He's nowhere around. Nobody talks about him anymore. Maybe he'll play for Rajasthan Royals this season. Yeah, hopefully he'll get a spot in the playing eleven. But 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 it is it is interesting to think about that, right? Like because so uh, someone uh, who was talked about in the same breath as Sachin Tendulkar at that time, and they're friends, and he also has this knack. Kambli has this incredible knack of these high scores. But for the for the reasons that you mentioned, his perceptions of you know how he's able to handle fast bowling, but also coupled with all the stories of attitude issues, 
he was always in the news for the wrong reasons, it, it seemed like. Um, is, is that a case where do you think it's... See, more talented than Tendulkar and attitude issues were both created, both, uh, we both believe in this because media wanted us to believe. And in the 1990s, there was no internet, right. no social okay. media, so there was no way to verify. You had to believe what they say, they told you. So let's talk about uh, Maninder Singh. You know, in um, 1982, at the age of 17 years, he was the youngest Indian to get a test cap. And uh, now I haven't personally followed him, but, you know, like you said, it's all based on what I've read and what you follow through the media. But he was considered at that point to be the next Bishan Singh Bedi. And, but when you look at his career, in his 10 plus years of test cricket, he played only 35 out of India's 83. Uh, he averaged 38 with the ball, took one wicket every 16 overs, uh, whereas his first class record is 600 wickets at 23. So what can you tell us about that? Like, how can we even begin to explain that? No, uh, Maninder, uh, Maninder's career went on the decline. If you see around the... Maninder actually unexpectedly, I mean, it, it was a pleasant surprise for many of many that how well he bowled in England uh, in on the 1986 tour. And then uh, uh, less than a year after that, Maninder, uh, it was a turning wicket, but he took 7 for 27 in the first innings of a test match. I thought that was incredible for a spinner. Uh, basically, 7 for 27 against Pakistan in Bangalore. It was a turning wicket, I agree. But uh, later that year, uh, in 1987, Maninder had a very good World Cup. Yeah, so Maninder, uh, he had a peak uh, between, say... Uh, uh, June 1986 and March 1987. So, in that period in Test cricket, he, uh, I think, had 55 wickets in 13 Test matches or something like that. And in his other 22 Tests, he had 33 wickets. So, it was a huge difference. He has a, he had a peak during which he was oh, probably the best spinner in the world for an, about 9-10 months. So, what happened uh, later was, uh, it is... Uh, so at that point we were uh, again we had to and he was one of the best bowlers of the 1987 World Cup. So what happened was uh, essentially there Maninder later told many times that he never received the guidance when things started getting wrong. Uh, this this makes sense because back then even as late as in the 1980s India did not have the uh, professional structure that we see today. Remember, this is not, uh, I mean, uh, which is why, again, we shall go back to the 83 movie that shows how, uh, I mean, despite being a good team, how, uh, I mean, how unprofessional the overall structure was. So, Maninder never, never, and this was not too much, uh, and not, a very, uh, not a lot of years after that. We are discussing the mid-80s. So, essentially, Maninder, never got the guidance that would uh, help him return but uh, later much later i think uh, around 2019 2020 he gave a very candid interview to cricket about his post cricketing days he his career ended very early remember 
he was i think uh, not even 30 when his uh, career was over his first class career was over he played his last test match i think at 27 so essentially um, what happened was he went into depression and uh, again this was a taboo in india for a long time and uh, it was a very candid interview i think uh, i have forgotten who took the interview but uh, uh, he spoke up very openly about he sought how he sought solutions but never found them and the lows he had to endure during that phase he later became a successful commentator there's no doubt about that but uh, i in today's setup both maninder's lack of form and uh, mental health would have been addressed far far better it was just a case of him being born in the wrong era and what's interesting is uh... by the way that interview that you mentioned the cricket for one i think that was himant brar and um, in that interview the other piece that he mentioned was he how he lost his action which you know to a casual cricket fan they would be wondering what does that even mean but i think it was just the rhythm he just never found it back the rhythm of his bowling and his action and it just you know affected his confidence as well so it's a very uh, odd thing to happen i feel like somebody who's uh, and maybe it's also a reason uh, it's also a case because he joined the indian team at 17 if he had you know already bowled tens of thousands of balls in domestic maybe he would have been a little more um, you know maybe a little more uh, practiced or or something like that uh, but but i guess it's just one of those odd cases because as you said you know it's a really good peak where he seemed like a world cha- world beater and and then sudden dip so um, I, i don't think we've seen a lot of such cases in in world cricket yeah so the thing is the problem with uh, making your debut international debut early is you are uh, already at the big stage biggest stage before actually going through before actually handling failure so essentially if you are a child prodigy you are Uh, successful and you are successful and you are successful and suddenly you are playing test cricket. You are not. Uh, you don't know what, how to cope with failure. So that is a problem they have faced. And the first in and the first failure often hits them worse than the seasoned first class cricketers. Right, which is why whenever there are any calls for you know like the latest under nineteen stars, like now we're talking about the Yash Dools. Um, the hunger geekers and we look at them they've got so much potential so much promise and inevitably you hear calls to like let's put them in the national side and you know let's see how they do but like you said they have not seen or experienced failure to the extent where it requires them to work on their game to improve themselves uh, as cricketers so i feel like that's maninder singh is probably a good example of that right like just yeah but just on the flip side you may you don't want to leave that debut for too late either i mean you don't want to want a player to pass his peak that's that's true that's true it's so it's about finding that right uh uh time <laughs> which is why we pay the selectors because it's not just about looking at numbers and putting someone in you want to see at what stage uh what stage of their career if you want to make sure they're at their peak when you're selecting them but at the same time you don't want to put them in too soon 
So yeah, it is uh, something that selectors with experience, you know, professional experience as players, that should help them make that decision. So yeah, one case where selectors probably went wrong, but again, uh, BCCI should take some responsibility. BCCI of the 1980s should have taken some responsibility. They should have ensured Maninder got his, found a way back. Today, he would have gone to NCA and trained under the best coaches in the country. He had a beautiful action, by the way. If you can watch him on YouTube, there are there must be some videos still. They sometimes get struck down for copyright issues, but you will find some videos. He had a beautiful action. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned that because if we were talking to India's women's uh, former captain, Mamta Mabin, and she was mentioning the same, that during her time, it was when you needed help or guidance, you just had to look at the seniors. There was no other real guidance. So it was probably also the case with, you know, the time, the likes of Maninder Singh and uh, just whether it was luck or uh, just the setup and, uh, during his time when, when things started to go wrong, you just didn't quite get the help. Um, but uh, moving on, I think one of the other characters in cricket who uh, who has a fascinating record is a man who sits ninth in the list of most first class hundreds, and that's Graham Hick with a in, with enormous one hundred and thirty six centuries, which is I mean that's just mind boggling. Um, and even before he had made his England debut, he already had fifty plus hundreds. And, you know, rightly was considered the next big thing. Yet, when you look at his test numbers, they were they were very different. At 65 test matches, at an average of 31, just 600s. Um, I think there's been cricketers like that across countries where they've been just very, very good for the domestic level, but not quite had the chance or not quite been able to um, prove themselves at the top level. Uh, so what, what do you think about Graham Hick and, and are there any other parallels that um, in world cricket? Yeah, I mean, you'll often see these gaps. It is not rare. I mean, I know, see, you can think of, say, uh, I'm sure Hanuma, Hanuma Vihari will have an excellent career, career but he, had a, he has a splendid first-class first record. And then uh, uh, just... Look at the careers of, say, Saba Karim. Um, and, uh, yeah. I mean, these people have, Ajay Sharma, just one test match. I mean, he, these people have phenomenal numbers. And then uh, <clears throat> uh, they get one chance and uh, I mean, uh, then they're just gone. And unlike, unlike, but the difference is, Hick actually had a reasonable test career. Reasonable in the sense of, reasonable in terms of duration. But that happened because Hick at that Hick in the 90s played for the worst cricket team in the world. England by the end of the 90s had dropped to the bottom rank. They were below Zimbabwe by the end of 1990s. They were losing to everyone because uh, so if you play for a side like that, you'll get a long career. I don't think Hick would have made it to uh, an England side say even 10 years later. I mean, he would have made it, but uh, would have been dropped after a few early failures because that would mean he would have to, I mean, see, uh, the moment Kevin Peterson arrived, they were ruthless enough to drop Graham Thorpe. So, 
I don't think in a middle order consisting of Vaughan, Bell and Peterson or Thorpe before him, he could have made it. He made it, he had a reasonably long test career because, uh, uh, I mean, he was playing for the weakest side in the world. But that will that will keep happening. We'll see more of these. The, dom the first class giants of England will not be successful at test level. We'll see more and more of this because English cricket, English the English county cricket does not prepare them to handle conditions in Australia or India anymore. They used to at one point. I mean, uh, it, the conditions were different, but the tours were used to be longer. So there were tour matches and cricketers get a, a, could get adjusted. But these days, uh, I don't think the English county cricket uh, necessarily produces the best possible cricketers. Yeah, and I think the one other example that I can think of on, on those lines who's recent is Chris Wokes because he you know does fabulously every time he plays in England. Um, he's almost unplayable in the first few overs. But the moment he goes abroad, his record is just something else. So another example where you know England are picking somebody based on their system, and obviously that's working out well in England, but outside not quite yielding. When was the last time England won a Test match? Yeah, uh, I think the last one I can Probably remember is India. the one against India in Chennai. It yeah. was against <laughs> India, and the one before that was against India, and uh, one the last one was against India at home, uh, and the one again before that was against India in India. So these were every all they had they won in the last year, I think, and they have lost what three and two one four and two six and four ten ten Test matches I think, or something like that. And I think even in the Indian system, Manish Pandey comes to mind for me at least, and maybe this is a wrong assessment, but at least in list A cricket, I feel like his numbers have been consistently good. Um, in IPL, the last few years, he's not really set it on fire, but uh, but list A numbers had always been good. And then for the Indian team, he whenever he got the chances, he couldn't quite deliver. I think unlike Hick, one could, one could argue that he didn't get as long a run just because of, you know, as you pointed out, just because of the quality of the Indian side and, and the competition. But do you think he also kind of falls into that category? Uh, there will be a lot of cricketers who fall into this category. Shreya Sayer got his chance so late. We were discussing yeah. Shreya Sayer five years ago uh, when he had that phenomenal series, when he was threatening to break BVS Lakshman's record for most runs in a single season. Uh, in a single Ranji Trophy season. That was when we were discussing Shreya Sayer. But he got his chance so late. Uh, there's Manish Pandey, as you mentioned. Uh, Vihari, uh, finally his chance has come. So, yeah. finally he has probably got, uh, he's probably going to get an extended run. There will be. I mean, if it's a top team, if it's uh, a team this good, then there's no, hardly any option but to leave out domestic stars. Yeah, when you look at the likes of Shreyas Iyer, Manish Pandey, these are players who are not getting a long rope because the Indian middle order for so long has been occupied by Pujara, Kohli, and Rahane. And they get, what, a few opportunities here and there, and they're expected to just shine immediately. And if they don't, they get dropped. But in a case of someone like Graham Hick, he got an extended run. I don't think he can complain that he did not get enough opportunities and I think there are players like that around the world where they do really well, 
domestically, they seem to have everything right. But when they come and play in international cricket, they get a long rope, but they just are not able to make that jump. They're not able to make that adjustment. No, no, there's a difference in quality between the two levels. There's no doubt about that. The first difference is, I'll, I'll, I'll just, uh, I, I, uh, I'll just, uh, one of the biggest differences uh, uh, test batter faces is fast bowling. No domestic side has three, four fast bowlers. Fast bowlers are bowlers of genuine pace. But in a test, in test cricket, suppose you're playing a side like India or Australia, there will be three fast bowlers coming at you all day. In domestic cricket, that never happens. You are, so there is a huge gap between the two levels. And it's bigger than probably we think. One of the re- another reason is in India particularly the domestic the the test the test stars do not play in domestic cricket. So the you are not facing the best in the not facing the best in the country. There will obviously be a big gap. Right. Can you think of any other players who we would classify in this category of players who should have had a better career or longer career? Uh, but for various reasons that you know we don't talk about them enough players who might fit into this category that we are we've been talking category about that we are we've been talking about Wasim Jafar two double hundreds almost yeah. 2000 runs uh yeah i mean he definitely fits in with Graham Hick like that category of players who did well domestic they got enough chances in international cricket but they couldn't crack it Rishikesh Kanitkar. Again, lots and lots of runs in domestic cricket. It's it's unfortunate, but I think all of them, uh, they all have contributed in some form or the other to some cricketing memory. Like Kanitkar, we can remember that last ball four against Pakistan. Um, um, I think uh, that is uh, slightly unfair because uh, Kanitkar... Uh, Again, somewhat like Prasad, we remember moments. We don't remember. Uh, right. Yeah, so, that's what yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, so Kanit, see, for uh, Rajasthan, I think, had reached the Ranji Trophy final eight times. Uh, they had never won. Kanitkar shifted from Maharashtra to Rajasthan and... Uh, the Rajasthan were at that point in the plate group and from the plate group they won the Ranji Trophy right. and next season Rajasthan became the f- fifth team in Ranji Trophy history to win the title twice in a row so yes I mean I don't think that contribution is really talked about a lot right I think uh, it, it, I it might be fair to say that in the social media age, right, we are so we are so exposed to recent events, recent achievements. Uh, but for players who played, you know, any time before, let's say the two thousand seven, you know, let's, let's say pre. Okay. Thankfully, we have something yeah. there. The last Indian coach to win an ICC <laughs> trophy is Rishikesh Kanetkar. Right. And even then, we talk more about Vivius Lakshman than Karatkar. <laughs> yeah. It's just unfair. Um, but, but yeah, it, it is 
more because I think it's more because of social media that we tend to brush all of those under the uh, carpet, so to speak. And if we don't see any anything about them on YouTube, you know, they might as well be like an ancient relic as, uh, of sorts. Um, but I think, you know, these players, even if they didn't have long careers or if they didn't have careers that was, you know, worth uh, bringing up again and again, they all contributed to cricketing memories for fans who used to follow back then. Uh, unfair as it may be, I think ultimately they were able to contribute to their team, contributing to the fans' memories of games as they grew up. And I think a lot of these players, uh, I keep thinking, you know, like when you mentioned Kanitkar, Wasim Jafar, I keep going back to when I was a ch- child because <laughs> it reminds me of uh, how long I've been following this game. Um, but Abhishek, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up there. I want to thank you so much for your time. Um, and despite all of the connectivity issues, we were able to talk about some of these players. And I do hope you will come back so that we can talk uh, some more. Uh, but to our listeners, uh, you can find more of Abhishek on cricketnews.com. You can find him on Twitter at ovshake42. And if you haven't already, do check out his book, uh, Sachin and Azar at Cape Town. Indian and South African cricket through the prism of a partnership. It is available on Amazon and we'll be including the link in our show notes. Abhishek, thank you so much again uh, for coming on The Last Wicket. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Last Wicket. This podcast is a Cricket Guys production featuring your hosts, Benny, Mayank, Nish, and Himanish. For more details, please visit thelastwicket.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, do let a friend know, rate, and subscribe on your platform of choice. Follow us on your social media feeds and leave us a voice message if you would like to share your thoughts with us. Thank you again for listening. And from all of us here at The Last Wicked, stay safe and stay healthy. Mm-hmm.